0: Again, everybody, and welcome to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. My name is Bob Kaler. I'm here with my co-host Stephanie Greenwald, who's in Oklahoma City. I'm here in Monument, Colorado. As always, I'm not going too many places these days, but we are still doing the work of preachers. Stephanie and I are both. Stephanie and I are both preachers. So Stephanie, the question I want to open with today, since our topic today is sermons, Wesley's sermons, what are you preaching these days?
1: Well, hi, Bob. It's so good to be back with you again. And you know, what a great question, because uh, right now there are so many things going on in our culture that allow us to preach on some things that are just very relevant for what people are dealing with right now. And in fact, I will be preaching for the next few weeks at St. Andrews because my uh, senior pastor is out of town. He's taken some well-deserved vacation time. And so I'm going to be preaching this this Sunday on something called Welcome to the Masquerade. And we're going to be talking about what it means to come boldly before the throne of Christ, as we hear in Hebrews 4, because so many of us are dealing with wearing masks. And what does it mean to hide behind a mask? And uh, what does that look like For us as Christians, when we are willing to come boldly before the throne of Christ without a mask on, without hiding behind anything. So that's what we're gonna look at. And then the next several weeks after that, we're doing a sermon series called Brave, where we look at the different people throughout the Old and New Testaments who have been brave in times of trial and difficulty, just like we are called to do in this current setting. So that's what we're doing. We're kind of looking at that. Cultural relevance thing, but what are you doing,
0: Bob? What are you well, preaching on? We've been in the lectionary, which has been a fascinating exercise, and particular, in particular, this kind of period of time where it's a Holy Spirit thing, in my view, because the lectionary always speaks to wherever you happen to be, and so we've been in Genesis because we use the the semi-continuous lectionary, and the Genesis texts have been about the story of Jacob. And this past Sunday, I preached on the text where Jacob has the dream about the staircase going up and down. And that whole idea that he is in the nowhere between two somewheres, you know, the past that he's leaving behind and the future that he's going to. And and when he wakes up from this dream, he's had a stone for a pillow and he wakes up and he says, God was in this place and I didn't know it and is there an opportunity for us to think about this nowhere between two somewheres as a place where God is in this place and didn't know it now this coming Sunday is uh Jacob marrying uh wanting Rachel getting Leah and Rachel something to do with veils and heavy drinking I'm not sure by the time people (laughs) listen to this this will be past. but it's always very interesting to be like wow that is a text I have to deal with this Sunday, or one of the other alternative texts that are there. You've got Romans eight. you've got um this is this is the eighth Sunday after Pentecost as we're recording this coming up. So you've got a bunch of okay. different options, but it's but it's interesting. and and mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's kind of where things are. I'm sure lots of people out there are doing different things, but I love your series idea. Those are, Those are phenomenal. Getting right at the mask thing. Don't even dance around it. Go right at it. Right. That's awesome. What do you want to introduce our guest today? And I want to ask him too what he's preaching on because I know he's doing a little bit of preaching as well. I'm excited to hear what his answer to that
1: question is, too, but let me take a moment to introduce him, Dr. Jason Vickers. We are so glad to have him on the show today. He is the professor of theology at Asbury Theological Seminary, the author of 10 books, including an edition of Wesley's Sermons, uh, edited along with Ken Collins, which was published in 2013. So Jason, we are so excited to have you here today, and we also want to know what you're preaching on, too.
2: Hey, thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be with you and Bob. Uh, I am preaching this Sunday at St. Andrews, uh, a different St. Andrews, uh, St. Andrews Anglican in Versailles, Kentucky, and I'm doing a sermon that I'm calling "The Spirit of Resistance." Uh, so I'm going to do a very foolish thing and mix religion and politics. Um, I'm going <laughs> to look at uh, the, the lectionary texts uh, in the in the um, Anglican Church this Sunday. Around there's one in First Kings where God promises. Uh, to b- greatly bless Solomon's reign. And you know, in today's kind of environment, there are questions around whether God is at work uh, with the appointment or the election uh, of presidents, uh, whether or not um, God has a hand in that. Uh, and one of the things I'm gonna be doing is playing off of Augustine's City of God, where he says that mm-hmm. God really actually brought about the Roman Empire, ultimately brought about the reign of Constantine, Uh, and and a period of prosperity under Constantine. But then the really key point is that the the, the next two emperors after Constantine, who were also Christians, uh, their reigns ended in disaster. Uh, It was not good. And Augustine says that God was in that too. And the real question for all of us is what is God trying to teach us, whether we're in a season of prosperity or a season of turmoil? What is it that God
0: is up to? Fascinating stuff this this is a rich time, I think. It's sort of been a gift to us. It's not kind of business as usual. this is there's a lot of stuff that that the scriptures intersect with. And so sermons become a major communicating piece for for the culture at this point, which is why we invited you on to speak with us today about, a particular set of sermons that have been sort of universally used in the Methodist tradition over a long period of time, and those are the sermons of John Wesley. And as we've been moving toward the launch of a new Methodist denomination, a traditional Methodist denomination, hopefully coming up in 2021, early 2022. We've been doing a lot of work with the WCA Council and with the Next Steps Working Group on developing our doctrinal foundations. And we worked really hard at wanting to incorporate Wesley's sermons within that foundation. So I wanna invite you to give us a little bit of a background on how Wesley's sermons came to be essential for Methodist doctrine and theology.
2: Yeah, sure. That That's a, a great place to start. Uh, the Methodist tradition, as you know, I mean, this is fitting for this podcast, uh, really. Uh, whatever else has been at the center of Methodism from the beginning, uh, preaching has been at its center. And Wesley's sermons actually come about. Uh, he He writes them, publishes them, uh, for the preachers. Uh, the, the movement early on is very empowering of new preachers, uh, lay preachers, uh, people that don't that may not have had the opportunity to go to the University of Oxford, right? Like Wesley, uh, to get a first rate education uh, in that day. And so he writes and publishes sermons in part to aid in their own theological education. But also, in as a way of 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 having something against which to to test the content of their preaching, especially in the early Methodist preaching houses, um, because when you just have a when you when you're empowering lots of people to preach, right? Um, you know, you never know what you're going to get <laughs> at sometimes, mm-hmm. and so uh, really the earliest function of these sermons uh, was as a kind of standard. You could almost say they were a standard for preaching. Uh, So we use that that phrase standard of doctrine is there early on, and we certainly use it. But the the real point of the sermons was to serve as a standard by which to evaluate preaching uh, in the early Methodist preaching houses.
1: Hmm. I just think that's fascinating. It's so it's so interesting to hear how his sermons affected those uh, who were who were also preaching. So I'm also curious: what do the sermons contain, and how are they organized? Because some say that we should be looking at his 44 standard sermons. Others say 52, 53, but in the edition uh, you, that you put together with Ken Collins, you guys sort of reordered and included the sermons in a particular sort of fashion. So uh, why did you organize them differently than some of the earlier editions?
2: Yeah, so that's a great series of questions there. Uh, the uh, <laughs> So the first, what, what happens in Wesley's day, and this will kind of answer the, ho- hopefully, the question around the 44, the 52, 53, where does that all come from? Uh, because it is confusing, or it can be. And, and in actuality, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, in 1763, uh, there's the creation of what we call the Model Deed. It has to do with the legal governance for the preaching houses, uh, and there, uh, Wesley refers to the standard sermons, which at that point would have been the the volume or the edition that he published in 1762, and they that contained 44 sermons, uh, and so those were to be understood as as the standards by which to measure um, preaching in the preaching houses going forward. Uh, A few years later, 1770 or so, uh, Wesley himself issues a new collection that adds nine more sermons, which brings the total to 53. Uh, (laughs) And then some later editions in America will leave out the sermon on the death of Whitfield, and so of George Whitfield. And so that would reduce the number in that collection from 53 to 52. Now again, fast forward a few more years uh, toward the end of his life, around 1787-88, uh, Wesley actually reverts back to he publishes the original 44 again, and scholars seem to think that that the reason for this is not that he thought that the nine sermons he added to get to 53 uh, were were no longer worth reading or weren't valuable or important. But he was worried about some legal issues around the model deed and the fact that he had changed the content of the sermons and added those nine sermons. So he reverts back to the forty four. Now, that then a few years after his death, whenever the British Methodist Church gets up and running uh, in its own right, they will then prefer, for those reasons and, and kind of as the, the last edition that Wesley himself endorsed, uh, the 44, which leads you to sometimes hear this phrase, the British 44. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas in America, it's really the 52, I think, you know, takes root and is popular, just it's what gets published in, in, in some places. And so you have this, this uh, American 52 idea. So that's at least some history about the the 52 actually originates, really 53, uh, with Wesley himself. Uh, He creates the problem or the confusion, Uh, but he does does revert back to the 44 in the end. Uh, So that's just a quick thumbnail on the history. As far as the volume that I did with Ken Collins, um, what we did was we included all of the sermons in both the 44 and the 52, We made it clear uh, which sermons are from the 44 and which ones are the additional ones added in the 52. Um, That way, if someone wanted to to use this volume and and say, hey, I I really want to pay attention to the 44, well, they know which ones those are, or if they want the 52, that those are there as well. And you're right, we added an additional uh, eight sermons. And the reason we did that, uh, two reasons really, uh, and just quickly a thumbnail here, we added the, general, the, the sermons, the general deliverance, the new creation, on working out our salvation, the danger of riches, uh, on visiting the sick, uh, the duty of constant communion, free grace, and the image of God. And we added those because those were sermons that we believe, in the last half century or so, um, of Wesleyan studies, Wesley studies. Uh, these sermons have had enormous importance in Wesleyan theology, uh, and they they help to fill in some important theological gaps in the 44 or the 52 if they're not there, so they, they add something that's theologically significant. Um, and then we ordered them according to what's called the, uh, sometimes called the, the ordo salutis. And there's a lot of confusion around that. Uh, some people think that that when you refer to the ordo salutis, and that just means you start with, you know, kind of prevenient grace and then sin and justification, regeneration, sanctification, right? Kind of the, the ordering of the Christian life of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, um, some people think that, that that this that the language of ordo salutis is some attempt to impose a strict order as to how all of that's supposed to go on everybody. And actually, in its magisterial Reformation kind of origins, the phrase ordo salutis actually means this is the order in which it makes the most sense to teach these things, right? <laughs> Uh, so it doesn't make any sense to start with sanctification if you haven't already said something about sin, right? It makes right. more sense to start with sin and then eventually get to talking about and teaching about sanctification. So the order is not some attempt to, to straightjacket spirituality, but rather uh, to, to kind of guide the way we teach and talk about these things in a way that, that just makes sense on the face of things. Um, So that's sort of the the rationale behind our ordering in that volume. Uh, It's called The Sermons of John Wesley, A Collection for the Christian Journey. It was put out by Abingdon in in 2013. Um, And really our desire is is to aid in the work, and I'll say more about this later on uh, today, uh, to really to aid in the work of spiritual formation and development.
0: The, the way that you have ordered them is extremely helpful. I mean, I have the old, a couple of old versions. I have Outler's version on my shelf as I'm looking at it. I have um, another edition that we used at Asbury back in the early 90s, uh, kind of a hardback edition. But this this edition makes so much more sense. And you talked about the inclusion of a couple of other sermons, which I think are critical. The image mm-hmm. of God being the first sermon in the collection, which to me is is essential his his whole understanding of of the image of god really does drive where we go from there it's so different than say you know kind of a uh, we start with the good you know we start with with the positivity about how god creates humanity but but the duty of constant communion is one that really influenced me significantly mm-hmm. i mean when we uh, we we started doing weekly communion here a few years ago largely because I read that sermon again, and had it kind of grab hold of my own life, and we we implemented that. So there is there's a tremendous amount of and all of the sermons on the Sermon on the Mount are included, uh, which is which is very powerful, very practical way of thinking about that. So I'm thinking about how I've used them in this, as a seminary student and as a as a Wesleyan preacher over the course of three decades and dropped into them here and there. But if I was a if I was a a young single yeah. enthusiastic, in the best sense of the term, uh, Methodist preacher in the mid eighteenth century in yeah. say northern England and I was I was running the circuit, how would I use these sermons then, and we're going to get to how we'll use them now. We might use them now later, but how would I have used these sermons if I was a, a young Methodist preacher? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. I, I think, you know, it's it's the kind of question that, uh, the answer is probably underfunded by by hard evidence. There's not just there's only so much evidence for that as to how any one say you know mid late 18th century preacher might have related to or used these sermons. Um, we have some sense for their their publishing history. We know that that they were published frequently and often and circulated. I, I think that the idea was uh, hope hopefully that they would read them. Um, I don't think a lot of people were actually preaching them, uh, you know, orally to congregations. The idea was not to, to, to preach these sermons themselves, but rather uh, to study and to read them in a way that would, that would hopefully shape their theological content in, in the sermons they were preaching, or that would help guide maybe even their interpretation of Scripture. Uh, especially on practical matters, which is, I would say, one of the things that that you know, there's we we sometimes refer to these, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, as doctrinal standards. Um, but if if we mean by doctrine, you know, the kind of core or essential beliefs or teachings of Christianity, like say what's enshrined in the creeds, yes, that some of that content is there certainly in, in specific sermons, uh, but, but really there's just an enormous amount of content that relates to the moral life, or what you might call the Christian ascetical life, um, how, how you should use your money, uh, what you should wear, whether you should wear expensive jewelry or clothing. Um, how And really there's so much scattered throughout the sermons on things like stewardship, Uh, The stewardship, not just of money, but especially time and even property. Uh, So I think that probably one of the great influences of these sermons, as much as anything, was on the way Methodist preachers, and subsequently those who heard their preaching, uh, how they understood the, the Christian life in very practical ways right, sort of on-the-ground, day-to-day life ways, um, so that it's not that the doctrinal material proper isn't, isn't there or isn't important, but I have a hunch that the, the sermons influenced, if you will, the, the moral culture of Methodism. Uh, in the early going and and how Methodists related to uh, their neighbors to all kinds of things and 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 again, issues of money and time and stewardship and and um, all those kinds of very practical things are, are quite prominent actually.
0: yeah, it's it's eminently practical, mm-hmm. I think, to read Wesley, in that sense, it's it's more like instead of maybe I'm wrong on this, but i'm but I'm gonna test it. So it's more like, <laughs> practical standards than it that it is so much focused on doctrinal standards whereas we get our doctrinal standards from a lot of different sources and and as you said there's a lot of it there in Wesley yeah. but even in his sermons that are highly theological mm-hmm. like uh scripture way of salvation um mm-hmm. you know and and uh things like that where he he gives the, the theological grounding, but then here's the here's the application. not in the way that we would do it, three points in a poem or whatever that a lot of preachers do it, but certainly in a way that that says there's a it's very Pauline in that sense, you know there's this kind of mm-hmm. you know outcoming of this and, and moving in that direction. And as yeah. a result of that, I think that a lot of people see Wesley kind of being malleable theologically, Uh, because he's so practical. And what's happened with that, I think, is that a lot of people have have taken Wesley's quotes out of context. Mm -hmm. He's probably the most quoted person in Methodism and the one who's quoted the least. Uh, Kevin Watson has a whole series of blogs on stuff that Wesley never said that we attribute to him, right? Right. So... So what what are some of the ways you've seen Wesley's sermons mishandled or misappropriated? I'm thinking here of sermons like Catholic Spirit, yeah. which is often misquoted to give the idea that Wesley was a big tent pluralist, think and let think, hey, whatever you want to do is great. I'm all for that. I am the quintessential 21st century pluralist right. way before my time. So talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, just... Um Oh, a side note when where, where Kevin Watson is concerned and his uh, blogs about things Wesley never said. a few of us uh, a couple of years ago we 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 really wanted to get together, pool some money and, and make up a couple of t-shirts uh, for Kevin that would that would actually have those <laughs> falsely attributed quotations and then you know John Wesley at the bottom as if he actually said them right?
0: <laughs> yeah, John Wesley probably. <laughs> or the, or something there. like that, right? Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. So um absolutely the 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 sermon Catholic Spirit is a great example. I use it all the time in, in when I'm teaching on Wesley here at Asbury, actually. Um of of, of how we, we kind of take things out of context uh with Wesley and his with his sermons the same way we can with scripture, even uh, you know, where in that case, um You know, he's got this wonderful kind of, uh, if your heart is as my heart, give me your hand, you know, generous, inclusive spirit. But if you read the very next few sentences, uh, he says something like this unless you are a Socinian, a Unitarian, or a Deist, and then I'll have no fellowship with you, right? So he's very clear that there are, in fact, doctrinal boundaries here, right? If you deny certain core teachings of the faith, which Socinians, Unitarians, and Deists did at the time— uh, then, then you're not uh, someone that, that Wesley wants to be in fellowship with, and we always forget to go on and, and quote that material. But it's not as catchy. Not it's not as tweetable, you know, right? Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but um, I think that that's really important. That he is a very textured um, and, and also often linear thinker so in a very logical kind of way you know he's sort of if a and b and c then eventually you'll get to d and e and f right and he's sort of and and he he's always kind of building an argument as he goes well if you dip into the middle of that and pull out c without paying attention to you know d e and f uh you you could easily end up misguided another one just quickly because I said that I, I, a minute ago, you know, that I thought that a lot of the content that would have shaped the, the lives of preachers and, and and early Methodists would have been kind of the moral, ascetical content. But also content, there's enormous content that that has to do with uh, spirituality and, and living out our faith. And and that often has to do with things like assurance of salvation, uh, which can be a a matter of deep personal anxiety for people. That's a prominent theme that shows up. uh, But also um, works and the relationship between faith and works. And there's another area where, in, in kind of some of the old Wesleyan Calvinist debates, right, that Wesleyans will often be caricatured as believing in, in, as being Pelagians, right, Uh, works righteousness kind of stuff, because Wesley affirms and strongly supports the role of works, the importance of works in the Christian life. Uh, And so that's one of those areas where you could just dip in in a few places where he's affirming works. And, and it would make it seem like Wesley and Wesleyans are, are really Pelagians, works righteousness kind of people, when in fact, what, what he really says, if you read the whole thing, is that we don't do works in order to be saved. But because we've been saved, right? That works are a matter of gratitude to God for the, the wonder of our salvation, right? That's they flow naturally out of our salvation rather than being a kind of means to it. Uh so you have to to read again when he's saying when anytime he's talking about works, it's important to to read the the whole sermon, if you will.
0: One of the things I picked up with that too is that a lot of people don't read all of the sermons, you know, they read about somebody writing about Wesley. And, and also when you read these sermons, you kind of have to read them a lot in order to pick up the rhythm of the language and what he actually means when he uses particular words. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there, there are a lot of examples of that, none of which immediately spring to mind, of course, but, but there are plenty of examples of, of places. Well, think about preventing versus prevenient. We use the word prevenient. He uses the word preventing, mm-hmm. um, which we would say, well, what does that even mean? How, because it's out of, out of context. He used the word trifle a lot,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know, an awful lot about time, about money, about a lot of different things. Um, I, I just love, I, I sat in St. Mary's a couple of years ago when I was on sabbatical mm-hmm. in Oxford and, and uh, just read um, his, his his last sermon there, when when he just lays it out on on the line to them, it's very powerful and practical in that sense. Mm. You can't really misquote that. Nobody walked away from there thinking he's pretty soft and generous here, <laughs> right?
2: That's right. Yeah. No. And 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 actually, kind of you know along those lines, I, I think one of the most trenchant aspects of the sermons. Uh, is his analysis of sin, or, or if you will, more broadly, the human condition, um, things like temptation, um, and and just he has such a nuanced uh, and 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 really penetrating account of of sin and the overall human condition. And I think that's often neglected. Actually, um, you know, we sort of get caught up looking at at other things. Uh, But I think that that Wesley gives us uh, insight, really, really insight that that in many ways um, is uh, it anticipates insights into the human condition that will come later on with the development of something like psychology right, in the university curriculum. Uh, but but he has marvelous insights into what makes us tick as human beings, uh, why we tend to desire the wrong things, love the wrong things, what keeps us from loving God, uh, the, the how we go wrong in a million and one ways.
1: I love, too, earlier how you'd said, you know, that his sermons are just so practical. Like, he just—he he really— spoke about the heart of how we should live as followers of Christ. And and I love, too, how you just made reference to the fact that he did have doctrinal boundaries. You know, he, he did say, we're going to draw the line at certain places. And so as we're kind of looking ahead um, towards the launch of a new traditional Methodist denomination, what role do you think his sermon's are going to play because, you, you know, you mentioned earlier, they really helped, uh, the early preachers know these are kind of the boundaries where, where we're going to preach. This is practical life. It's applicable to that, mm-hmm. but we've got these doctrinal standards. So how do you think that's going to help us as we form the new Methodism and it's going to ground us in our theology and practice in a helpful way?
2: That's a that's a fabulous. Really, that's that's the big question, isn't it? Uh, okay, it, it's what we all need to be worrying about and praying about. Uh, how how do we move forward in that area of our life together? Um, couple of things. The first thing might might surprise a few listeners. Um, in, there's a part of me that thinks that the worst thing we could do, uh, in terms of of uh, helping Wesley's sermons to, to really have life and to be influential in any new form of Methodism would be to make them standards of doctrine. Uh, that, that there's a part of me that thinks that's a good way of, of making sure that, that they're neglected and ignored. Now, to, 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 other than that just being an instinct on my part.
0: Um, but, ex- by the way, me. Billy Abraham said something very similar to that recently, <laughs> which I find fascinating. We'll have to ask him about that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a
2: historical reason for thinking this, right? So, uh, the language standards of doctrine in the United Methodist tradition uh, tends to get it, it's bound up historically with uh, the restrictive rule that was introduced in 1808, where we prohibit any changes, any any alterations to our standards of doctrine. Now. Um, there is a big debate about whether back then in 1808, the, the phrase standards of doctrine referred to what any of the Wesley materials or just to the articles of religion. Uh, so Richard uh tends to take the view that it that they don't refer to the Wesley materials. Tom Oden took the view that they do. However, whatever we make of all that, what, what I t- tend to point out is that um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people lament that uh, our articles of religion and later our, our confession of faith, which comes in in 1968, as well as Wesley's sermons, notes on the New Testament, all of this material is is just completely ignored in our churches, that people never do anything with it, they're not familiar with it. So so one of the things I'm tempted to say there is obviously uh, making that, you know, uh, a matter of a restrictive rule and you can't change any of it, it. One conclusion that you might draw is, well, if it's there and it's unchangeable, then I don't need to worry about it or wrestle deeply with it. When in fact, uh, maybe if we, you know, if we didn't do that, there would be more of a of a kind of ongoing working with these materials, wrestling with them. Now that that's all an open question. Um, the the more interesting thing for me, and and getting more at the heart of Stephanie's question, um, is, you know, what are what are doctrines, what is doctrine, what are doctrinal standards, Um, and should these materials be doctrinal standards in in some future church? That's really the the straight question, as it were. Um, So doctrine, you know, that term broadly can include all kinds of things. Uh, At the highest levels, uh, in say the Catholic tradition, you have some doctrines that are referred to as dogmas, uh, and they have a a kind of permanent uh, more secure definitive status than other kinds of doctrine. The doctrine of the trinity would 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 be kind of a dogma that that has a different status than say um the substitution theory of the atonement. In the in, now, I'm I'm speaking here of the Christian tradition broadly speaking. Here, um, now one way that that I like to think about this, and this will get to where what do we do with the Wesley material, the sermons, uh, whether it's the 44, the 53, the notes on the New Testament. Um, I, I like to to think in terms of the two kind of big classical creeds in in Christianity, the Apostles and the Nicene creeds. Uh, as, and now then there's the Athanasian Creed, which is a whole other area that, that actually uh, is quite interesting for different reasons. But, but the two big ones that are best known are the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. Uh, they have different functions in the history of Christianity and in the life of the church. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is often called the Baptismal Creed. It's the one that we use and work with uh, as a part of initiation into the Christian faith. Uh, as a part of getting people ready for, for their baptism. Uh, the Nicene Creed, of course, comes out of a period of controversy uh, with the, the so-called Aryan controversy. Uh, again, we, we'll have to, you know, bypass some of the details here, except to say that that it then has a different kind of function. It determines orthodoxy from heterodoxy on the important matter of the doctrine of God. Uh, But that's a little bit of a different and more more precise function. It it really is more of a test of doctrine in that way, whereas the Apostles' Creed is more intimately related to Christian initiation and formation. So I sometimes think that it would be really interesting to develop two sets of materials. Uh, one set of materials that, that kind of go along with the Apostles' Creed that have to do with getting people ready for uh, initiate, their initiation, their baptism, uh, but also ongoing formation in the faith. And then another set of materials that are truly you know, kind of test standards uh, of, of doctrine that differentiate on, on the most crucial matters of belief. Between orthodoxy and heterodoxy, and at the top of that list would certainly be the Nicene Creed. Now, so if you've got kind of two lists, if you will, uh, uh, one with Apostles' Creed at the head, the other with Nicene Creed at the head, then then you get to the question: What do we do with our existing materials, right? With Wesley's sermons, with the Articles of Religion, the Confession of Faith? That's an interesting question, Um, and and so I, I think that that there are so many tough. Decisions here that that say the Articles of Religion, for example, they reflect our heritage in the Church of England, uh, the English Reformation, and there are doctrines there in in the Articles that I call negative doctrines. Uh, they they tell you what you can't believe or teach, and and a good example would be something like purgatory, right? Now. Uh, that's that's just that reflects that co- the context in which those articles were born. So do we do we want to make all of that? Do we want to put it on the same footing or give it the same status as the Nicene Creed, for example? It's certainly a much more expansive list of doctrines, the articles of religion that is. Um, another issue here that's really interesting to me uh, in terms of what we do, right precedent here for what we do in the future. Um, The the Confession of Faith is a fascinating uh, document. It comes to us, of course, from the EUB uh, tradition when we came together in, in 1968 to form the United Methodist Church. But that confessional statement, which is now a part of our standards of doctrine in the UMC, originated in 1946 when the United Brethren and the Evangelical Association came together to form the EUB. So the EUB was not very old, as such, when we merged, as it were, in 68. The interesting thing is that when the UB and the United Brethren, the Evangelical Association, came together in 1946, they decided to set aside their historical standards of doctrine and write a new Confession that's how the confession of faith, our confession of faith, was born. At the creation of a new denomination, if you will, they said, hey, you know, let's let's just set aside each of our existing standards and write a new confession for a new church. So we have within our history um, a precedent there for possibly writing a, a new confession uh, that might go say, with the Nicene Creed, because there may be doctrines that we think are essential on for differentiating between acceptable teaching and unacceptable teaching uh, that are not treated in the Nicene Creed. Uh, now, what those doctrines would be is an interesting question. Maybe sanctification, or it, it's, it would be interesting to see what, what we, where we would go there. As for the Wesley material, just to, to kind of come back and circle back around to that, I tend to view that material as as being as having a function that's more like the Apostles Creed, Uh, in part because the content of the sermons, as we've been saying this entire podcast, is so broad and diverse and touches on so many different things. And if you make it a standard of doctrine in the sense of a test of orthodoxy, the question you raise is, do you really want to make Wesley's dress code something that, that people could have to surrender their credentials over? Right? You know, that, that's sort of the question that you raise. So I think we need different lists of doctrinal materials that do different things. It's a, so it's a matter of raising the question of the function of doctrine what is doctrine for? And I think we can think about doctrine in ways that, that allow for multiple functions and not just test of orthodoxy. On some things, we absolutely must have tests of orthodoxy, right? Um, but I don't know that we want to make everything a test of orthodoxy. Uh, and so I think that list needs to be uh, a little shorter a little, we need to be very careful on what's included there. I personally would be fine with the Nicene Creed uh, and interested in maybe finding ways to expand on that a bit in areas that are crucial to the Methodist theological tradition uh, and and in which we just, you know, so, so for example, anyone that denies the possibility of sanctification, Right or to, to that, uh, it seems to me that that puts you outside the pale. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's a, there are things that are not in the Nicene Creed that we need to address in in that sense. But I think I'd love to see us associate Wesley's sermons and maybe other materials with something like the Apostles' Creed and and find ways to ensure that all of that material is taken very seriously when we are initiating people into the faith, and then post-baptism, ongoing formation with a view toward entire sanctification.
0: We've talked about the formation of a catechism. I, I chaired the Accountable Discipleship Task Force, and one of the things that we said, and actually the British Methodist Church has this. I picked up a copy at the New Room last year they have a, a short catechism. It's very easy. It kind of encapsulates a lot of these things into very short form. And and I grew up PCA Presbyterian, Shiite Presbyterian, you know, where we had to, <laughs> we had to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And while that's that's a lot of stuff, I, I can tell you that formationally, that grounded me in a way that was, was a galvanizing against a lot of other stuff. You know, over a period of time. So maybe, maybe if I'm hearing you correctly, we need to think about the formation of something like that. That that is a practical use document that we take and and use as a teaching tool.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You could just tack on and and catechism or or a catechetical. So it's it along with baptism, catechesis. Uh, so you've got the Apostles' Creed, absolutely crucial for baptism. And then ongoing catechesis and formation, especially in a tradition that does infant baptism, catechesis is absolutely crucial. As with a view ultimately toward confirmation, yes, uh, that that if you're going to do infant baptism, there needs to be some kind of uh, catechesis that leads to confirmation. Now, the having said that, um, I personally, um, and and again, this may be. Um, Alarming to some people, uh, I I'm fine with thinking of Wesley's sermons as catechetical materials that would be located next, you know, in this in that sort of list with the, the the Apostles' Creed heads. Because here's what I would say to those who who think that's a lowering of their status. All right, there is no more important work than the work of evangelism. Baptism, catechesis, right? That if if we don't take those things seriously, then it doesn't matter which list you put these sermons on or what you call them, doctrinal standards or otherwise, if we don't take seriously the work of evangelism, catechesis, and formation in the faith, which is what I think these sermons are best suited for, along with the Apostles' Creed, uh, then we're going to be dead in the water no matter what we do. It won't matter what we call them.
0: So when we think about these as those catechetical kind of pieces, mm. how can we practically use Wesley's sermons in the church? It's difficult to get people necessarily to read 18th century English. I know Ken Kinghorn years ago did an edition where he updated the English. I've often thought it would be great, a great project to take Wesley's sermons and give them to a bunch of Methodist preachers and say, how would you work this in a way that was a practical sermon you could give in your congregation? Um, but how would you suggest congregations might become more familiar with Wesley's sermons or use them in a, in a new way?
2: Yeah, you know, what we need is is um, the uh, there's seedbed. Uh, recently, they, they put out this uh, book on the absolute basics of the Christian faith. I don't know if you ever saw that. Uh, and now there's one coming out uh, that, that's on the absolute basics. Justice, Hun- Justice Hunter is, is one of the people contributing to it. Uh, the absolute basics of, of Wesleyan theology, that sort of thing. Kind of, kind of along those lines, uh, maybe what we need is, is, is a resource that goes alongside the sermons so that the preachers, the pastors, the clergy are the ones who are really expected to familiarize themselves with the sermons. But then you have a resource that helps to transition them over to to the congregation, to the people, uh, that that really puts them into contemporary prose, uh, helps, raises questions for the people to grapple with. I'll tell you, most of these sermons, um, it's not hard. No, you're right. A lot of people would not, they would give up after three pages. This just doesn't even read like English, you know. Uh, but they're embedded in every sermon are just all kinds of things that, that are wonderful for raising questions, facilitating conversation. Uh, And so I think that you could distill the sermons down to their essential content and then have some, some really, some questions to guide conversation and dialogue on the basis of each sermon. So the, you know, the absolute basics of, you know, Wesley's sermons, in in a way, you mentioned Kevin Watson earlier. I, I think I noticed somewhere on social media recently. I think he's been doing, uh, tweeting out kind of reflections on you know one sermon at a time. Uh, so in some ways, he's all you know. Kevin's already working to kind of do something like that. It's just that that it needs to be developed in a way that can. I hate to use the word package, but can sort of be packaged up and given to congregations, pastors to use with their congregations, including young people uh, who, are, who are preparing, again, for confirmation, uh, part of that catechetical process. Uh, uh, you need a thumbnail sketch version of the 44 or the 52 mm-hmm. or 53, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll leave that debate to, to <laughs> Billy Abraham and, and Ken Collins and other people.
1: Well, Dr. Vickers, it has been so much fun to hear your expertise on this. What words of wisdom you have for us. And, and for our listeners, I'm sure, you know, some of them who are listening have read all of Wesley's sermons. Others have not even ever read one, but after hearing what you've had to say today, I will inspire so many of us to continue to read his sermons. I know personally, as I have read his sermons, I'm always amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit that comes out of what he says. I mean, it, it's just he was brilliant. He was an incredible follower of Christ, And we appreciate you and all the work that you have done to help us know more about that. So thanks for being here with us
0: today. Thank you. And I want to encourage you to go grab a copy of of uh, the Sermons of John Wesley. It's a really helpful edition. There's an outline at the beginning of each sermon. And, um, and the way that they're organized is really, really helpful. So I'll plug that book, even though it's a few years old, it's, it's pretty timeless. I use it on, on a weekly basis. It's been really, really tremendous. So I want to thank you too, Jason, for, for being with us. I want to remind our listeners that if you have questions or comments to send them to us at podcast at We also invite you to leave a, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod. Let us know how you're responding to these podcasts and particularly to these great discussions with some of the great theologians and thinkers in our new Methodist movement. So thank you all for joining us. We look forward to connecting with you next time here on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.